You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Our guest on today's episode of GDA Podcast is Todd Withorn. Todd is the president of ACAP Health Consulting here in Dallas, Texas, so he's in studio with us today. ACAP helps organizations of all sizes measurably improve the health and productivity of their employees. Todd's educational background is in kinesiology and exercise psychology. Exercise physiology, <laughs> but his true talent is in communication. Because his responsibility as an executive and a speaker, Todd is a member of the American College of Sports Medicine and the International Association for Worksite Health Promotion. Todd speaks all over the country, sharing the message that no one has a bigger impact on how long and how well you live than you do. Your health is truly your responsibility. So welcome, Todd. We've got a lot to share with our listeners today. You know why I speak all over the country? I think I remember. You How do you remember me, it? You send me all over the country. That's why I speak all over the country. No, we were reminiscing before we uh, went to record about years ago, I think it was late 2006, um, a, a member of the YPO chapter in Louisiana called me and he wanted Dr. Kenneth Cooper to come speak. And I got Dr. Cooper's fee, and the guy said, whoa, you know, we, we just wanted him for an hour. He said, I, I can't pay that much, but could you call back and see if there's some sort of a lieutenant over there, someone who could just <laughs> come share the message, forget the name. And I called back, and Dr. Cooper said, well, of course, that would be Todd. And that's how we met, and we've worked together a lot since 2007. And I agree, and I'm delighted to have done that. The guy that Called was John McNamara. That's right. Who has become a very good friend of mine and has uh, invited my son and I to, he lives in Park City now uh -huh. and we've gone out and stayed with John. So it was a great introduction and it, it kind of launched that, that YPO uh, audience, which has been fantastic. I'd love to, to start there because one of the things that has been so popular with YPO is um, this fit to lead talk that you do. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things often that business owners, entrepreneurs think is, well, I don't have time to, to be fit. And so, and I know you have some interesting ideas about how to create a culture of wellness and how to demonstrate the importance of being healthy. Why don't we dive in there? You know, time is a really crummy excuse. It, uh, as, as you know, Gail, I love, I love evidence. I love to, to base um, my recommendations and my thoughts around what is the science and what, is the, what does our history show. And, and obviously, the, the majority, depending on the literature that you look at, somewhere between 75 and 95% of Americans are failing to get enough physical activity. That's a, you know, an example of, you know, everybody knows that we should be uh, exercising to be physically active. Fitness is a good thing. Everybody knows that. But knowledge does not change behavior. When you ask people, 
very bright people, you know, why don't you exercise? The, the number one answer without a shadow of a doubt is I don't have the time. Well, that is a crummy excuse. We've got seven hours, excuse me, seven days in a week, 24 hours in a day. That's 168 hours a week. And believe it or not, the evidence, the data is very clear. If you do it right, and if you know what you're doing, and if you're fit enough to begin with, you can get by on 30 minutes a week, if you know what you're doing. And that's based on rock-solid evidence around something called HIT training, H-I-I-T, high-intensity interval training. Now, you can't, you can't go from zero to 60 overnight. You can't start out at that level. But if you know what you're doing, when, when you think about your activity, it's not how long you do it that is the only component. Fitness, it's really easy to think about. There's only three dials that you can adjust when it comes to your fitness. And that acronym FIT makes a lot of sense. F-I-T, frequency, how often are you doing it? One day a week or seven days a week? In The I stands for intensity. How hard are you working? So clearly, walking at a leisurely pace is different than running a five-minute mile. So there's another dial you can adjust. And the other is the time or the duration. Are you going for five minutes at a time? Or are you going for an hour and a half at a time? Right? You, you're training for a, an upcoming event. Told me you did an hour and a half of stair climbing. Mm-hmm. That tells me a lot. It tells me about your fitness. It tells me about how you're working. You know, how fast are you climbing those stairs? Those are all variables. So if you can crank up the intensity... There's an inverse relationship between the intensity and the time. The harder you work, the less time you have to work. So when you look at HIIT training, there's something called the seven-minute workout. And anybody listening can simply Google seven-minute workout. There's apps around this. Uh, There's been a lot of great research published recently, not only out of the United States, but out of Canada, out of Australia, looking at – and and interval training has been around a long time. But now the science is very clear that you can get a real return on your investment if if you bust your butt hard for a short period of time – Take a little break in between, bust it again, take a little break, bust it again. You can get a wonderful workout in about seven to eight minutes. You don't need a gym. You don't need a personal trainer. You don't need to climb a mountain or run a marathon. (laughs) You can do it in a hotel room for people that are, you know, uh, business guys that are and gals that are traveling a lot. You can do it anywhere. So it's not time. That's not, that's a crummy excuse. That's not the, that's not the issue. I believe it's a priority issue. And so when people really take the time to understand the benefit of being fit and the overwhelming impact it will have in the short term and the long term, it makes a lot of sense. But now you just got to figure out how to, how to work it into your schedule. One of the takeaways I remember when you, when you first got started that you shared with the group is you said, you know, you own a company and you have employees and they always want FaceTime. Why not put two treadmills in a room and announce, hey – I'll be on this treadmill every morning from, you know, 6.30 to 7.30. Whoever shows up first, you got an hour of my time. That always resonated with me. I thought, what a simple solution. I love that. I haven't done it, but I thought it was a great idea. And I have walked with plenty of my employees, and it's, it's really neat. And, and you're going to get a different kind of conversation that if you're sitting, you know, in the CEO or president's mm-hmm. office across from a desk, than if you're out going for a walk or a run or, or whatever, you're going to develop a different relationship. The, the tone of the conversation will be different. Mm-hmm. And it also, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the man or the woman that is leading an organization has an amazing influence on, on that culture. And if you're giving them permission, not only permission, but but modeling that behavior 
it changes everything. It really does. And I think, you know, I, I see it because we work with hundreds of companies around the country and the, the culture of an organization is always a reflection of the leader. And it's, it, I've seen it in every aspect, you know, I've, in professional sports, it's the same thing. You, you see those organizations that, that win titles and, and trophies, generally speaking, the leadership has, has got it figured out. So, you know, when I first started working with you, you were the lieutenant uh, for Dr. Cooper. One of the Dr. Cooper's great um, phrases that I love is squaring off the curve. Mm-hmm. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I love that concept. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, I, and, and you know, when you think about, uh, generally speaking, business leaders, it's just it's anybody, but especially business leaders, I think they appreciate this. Um, it's technically known as the compression of morbidity. So morbidity is a fancy name for sickness. Uh, if you can, you know, obviously we're, we're this is audio, so you kind of got to use the, the theater of the mind. But think of a think of a graph, and across the the axis, the vertical axis on the left or the y axis, think of of functionality, and across the x axis on the bottom, uh, think of age. So in the upper left is when we're in our you know, usually 23, 24, 25 is when we reach our functional capacity peak, where you're the biggest, the strongest, the healthiest that you've ever been. Um, and generally, after that, it's all downhill. And, and you can imagine a, a gradual slope where it's just every year that you get a little older, you lose a little bit of that functional capacity, a little bit of your health. And we think that's normal aging, and to a degree it is. But ultimately, in the last 5, 10, 15 years of life, you reach this area that is, is known as deficient survival, which I think is a really interesting term. You're, you're breathing, you're technically alive, but you're not living. And so you're just kind of existing. And so that's where so many people end up. If you look at the data, and this is all going to be driven primarily based on your habits, only 20 to 30% of your health is genetic. It's mom and dad. You can't change that. But the good news is 70 to 80% of your health is you. And I love to point out that you can't outsource your health. You can pay people to mow your lawn and fix your car and cook your meals and do all sorts of things. You cannot pay anyone to invest in you and your health. You can't pay anybody to sleep for you, to work out for you, to make healthy choices around nutrition. Those are out of 7.5 billion people plus in the world – there's no one that has more impact on your health than you do. That's really, really important. So when you think about the data indicates that 93 to 97% of Americans are on this, this slope, what would be considered a high-risk lifestyle, which means that every year they're losing their functionality. The alternative is to now reach that functional capacity peak and keep it at that level. Think of, you know, envision a, a straight line for the most part where you're living a wonderful life and you're doing all the things that you were put here to do and that you enjoy. And then when your time comes now, boom, you square off that curve. It's a, it's basically a right angle that goes from being horizontal to being vertical. And now you compress morbidity into a very finite window. You're not, you're not just hanging on for years and years. You live a life, you live a wonderful life, and when your time comes, boom, you square off the curve. What's interesting about that are two, two things. One is, statistically, by embracing healthy habits, the things that we already know we should be doing, if you can find a way to do those things, you will live statistically six to nine years longer. 
which is fine. But much more importantly is that gap between the high-risk lifestyle and the low-risk, that's the quality of life. That is where you can push back the onset of disability by between 13 and 20 years. You, whatever it is you love to do, whatever you're passionate about, it could be travel, it could be, you know, whatever, marathons, it could be gardening, it could be grandkids, it could be whatever it is that your whatever your why is. Why do you get up in the morning and what is, what's your juice? I like, you know, what's your juice? You can do that for tw- statistically 20 years longer if you just invest in yourself. And so you can square off that curve. I don't want to be hanging on with some stranger wiping applesauce off my chin and helping me go to the bathroom for the last 15 years of my life. It's not what I'm interested in. I want to be in the game. I don't want to watch the game. I want to be in the game. You know, I jokingly told someone the other day. Uh, I can't dunk anymore. I was a basketball player and still am a basketball player. I'm 60 years old. I play basketball on a very regular basis and I can't dunk anymore. And that bothers me. That really drives me nuts, but I'm still playing basketball and having fun. And so I want to, I want to stay, I, I, you know, as, as involved as I can for as long as I can. And I like to say that I don't, I don't want to watch my grand, grandkids play. I want to play with my grandkids. There's a big difference. So one of the things that you mentioned uh, from the onset was that you work with companies, remember mom mentioned this, but you work with companies to measure, uh, measurably improve their, their performance and their health. And then you also talked about, um, you, know, you know, leaders being able to model that behavior and embracing all these healthy habits. Uh, so I guess my, my question when you take all of that together and you compress it is – what are some of the benefits that companies that start to utilize and implement these strategies, you know, what are they seeing? What's 30 days out? What are the results 90 a year down the road when they start to embrace, you know, maybe getting more fitness in there, more health, you know, better choices in, you know, the cafeteria, et cetera? It's a great question. And it, it's really the way we've built our business because there's, there's, there's two very distinct value propositions when you think about employee health. Um, you got two different audiences, right? Because the individual, the employee, is interested in, in, I believe, two things. Now, I don't have absolute rock-solid data on this, but this is through years of experience. What do humans want? Human beings want to look and feel better, period. It's not that complicated. They want to look and feel better. And I think anybody listening to us would probably agree with that. And so that's a value proposition to the employees. If you can help them look and feel better. And of course, at the top of the list for most Americans is going to be their weight. A lot of people, you know, kind of define themselves by the number on the scale and they're challenged and, and it frustrates them and they've been working at it for years. On the other side of the question you ask is about what about from a corporate standpoint? What are companies interested in? Well, companies want to do something to curb their escalating healthcare costs. It's crazy. If you look at the data, every single year, that that expenditure goes up and up and up. And how do you control that? Now, a lot of people think you can't control it. And, you know, we we exist to prove them wrong because really they're, from an employer standpoint, if you think about the cost of healthcare, there's only two variables. There's the price that you pay for whatever it is you're buying. Now, let's assume you're a – most companies, especially large, medium and large-sized companies, are what's known as self-funded. They're basically paying their own insurance claims. Where does their money go? Well, it, there's very few exceptions to this rule. It goes to four buckets. It goes to cardiovascular cost. It goes to uh, certain cancers. It goes to what's called MSK or musculoskeletal, and it goes to diabetes. 
those four, and, and you can rank them in different orders. It's, it's never going to vary much. It can, might vary from year to year. All of those things are extremely costly, and much of, of the drivers of those conditions are preventable. It's being driven by the way we're living. The, the, the public health data around obesity, around physical activity, around diabetes is, is stunning when you look at it. I mean, stunning. Obviously, we've, we've got an obesity epidemic. That's very visible. We can see that. We can't see the physical inactivity epidemic. You can't look at someone and, and determine their fitness. You might try to guess and you might think you're accurate, but you won't be. There's a lot of big people that are fit and there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote, you know, appro- weight appropriate people that are completely unfit. I'm a big person who's fit. I just want to throw <laughs> okay, that just, out there. And of course, you know, this is digital, so no one can prove you wrong. So that's fine. And I and I, I'm, I'm teasing. Day, I'm a big fit guy. <laughs> but but so so really, what we believe that is the great opportunity for employers is around diabetes. Because diabetes is going to bankrupt our country when you think about it. Because if you have an employee that has diabetes, they cost on average 2.3 times more than your non-diabetic employees. And the vast majority of diabetes, over 90% of diabetes is type 2 diabetes. Gail's giving me the two sign. Yes, there's different types of diabetes. There's type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is bad luck. It's primarily genetic and it's just bad luck. Type 2 is considered a lifestyle disease usually driven by obesity and physical inactivity. 90 plus percent of diabetes is type 2, which means it's a preventable condition. Now listen to this, and, and Gail, you've... You, can, I, can I ask a question, though? Yeah. When you say two and a, like 2.3 times, mm-hmm. is that just based off of insurance claims, or is that based on lost productivity, days out of the office, having to go see a doctor? I mean, or are those additional it's, costs that we're not even Those are additional in? costs around, good good point, around productivity and around absenteeism. Yeah, I'll be expensive. <laughs> yeah. Really, really expensive. Down. So think about this. Right now, a snapshot of our country, we have 12.3% of American adults are, are diabetic. By, by definition, they have a blood glucose level of 126 or higher. 12.3%. By the way, in 1990, that was about 35 to 4%. So now it's 12.3%. We have 37%, another 37% that are considered pre-diabetic. Their blood glucose is between 100 and 125 you add those two together and you recognize that one out of every two Americans in our country today walking on our streets all across the country are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really frightening is that if you listen to all the experts and look at all of the research and all of the trends, it is predicted that for anyone born after the year 2000, that 40 to 50% of them will develop diabetes at some point in their lifetime. So we've gone in 1990 from about 35 to 4%. We're now at 12%, and it's predicted to go to 40 to 50%. So I can tell you there is no solution for that in terms of a checkbook. No one has enough money to pay for that. And so when you look at the conversion, what, what is known as when someone when converts, when they move from prediabetes to diabetes, that's known as conversion, when that happens – it is a bad deal for everyone. And right now in the United States, today, right now, today, 4,658 Americans will step out of the pre-diabetes department into the diabetes department. So we're producing disease at an incredibly rapid rate in our country. And when people talk about health care, I find that nine times out of 10, they're talking about 
economics. Who's going to pay for me, right? That's the decision. Because most employees are wanting their employer to pay for it or the government or somebody else. And the question I have is, who's going to pay for if if treating diabetes, and your point is very valid because when you look at things like absenteeism and productivity, tremendously impacted. So as you flash forward, if we look downfield and start trying to predict where all this is going, it is not where we are is bad, but where we're going is really bad. So as a company, it I believe it's incumbent upon leadership to do everything possible to learn what can be done to influence that. And that's exactly what our company provides. And we, we guarantee results. And, you know, we have companies, there's, there's a little company out on the West Coast that you probably know of anytime you go to your search engine and, and type in a search, they're, they're one of the healthiest companies in the country because they're, they're young and they're rich and they're smart. Those are, those are determinants of health. Um, health is not, there, there's no equality in health in our country. Um, yeah, we have a diabetes epidemic and yeah, we have an obesity epidemic, but, but there are certain populations that are much more at risk. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be, we have to be honest about what's going on here. And is, is it the role of the employer to try to influence the health of your employees? And that's a cultural issue. And those are conversations, sometimes very uh, unique conversations that a lot of companies have never really thought of before. But, but we have found and we've got 800, Plus companies, we're working with the state of Kansas, the state of Texas, and universities and hospitals and technology companies and energy companies, you name it. Because every single company that we've ever crossed paths with are to some degree being impacted by obesity and physical inactivity that is contributing to all of those conditions we talked about earlier, specifically diabetes. So, you know, what can these individuals do? I mean, aside from going to like a super low carb modified Atkins ketogenic diet and just starting to do a whole bunch of hit training. I mean, I mean, what can people really do to not be like reactionary, but instead very be proactive kind of about their health? I mean, because for me, I think a lot of it starts in the kitchen, but that's just great conversation. Great, great. You know, the question I get all the time is, is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it, you know, I'm a my background's in kinesiology, so I'm a little biased there, and I spent 14 years at the Cooper Aerobic Center, so we can talk about data all around that if you want to. Uh, I don't argue that, obviously, nutrition plays a huge role in that. Um, what, what I will um, – what, what I'd really find interesting, though, and, and Gail, you're smiling because, you know, I speak to a lot of different groups – there's there's three things you should never in a in a social setting you should never bring up and these days especially you should not talk about religion mm-hmm. you should not talk about politics and you should not talk about your eating style because <laughs> I, because you want to talk about getting people there are so many people that think, oh, I've got to be a vegan or I, you know, you got to do plant based or I'm eating clean. And then over here, you got the, you know, you got the carnivores that are paleo and I do this and I do that. And then you've got, you know, you mentioned, you know, ketosis and I, I, you know, man, I just had my ketones too. Like, I'm like so in ketosis right now. Oh my God. It's funny. It doesn't matter what you eat. It does. No, listen to me. No, I I know. I I can tell you're one of those guys. It's in my, in my talks. You want to, you want to talk to me about the way you eat? No, no, I don't care about the way I eat. No, what I was going to say though is, (laughs) you are. No, I was going to just say this though is like, you know, I dated in New York City when I have to ask a girl, what's your dietary restriction? Like, is it a no gluten thing? So do we have to go to like a, do we have to go get a risotto or something? It, you know, if, 
there, when you talk about nutrition, I always ask a question back. What are we talking about? Are we talking about weight? Or are we talking about health? Those are two very distinct conversations. And when it comes to weight, the data is, again, pretty evident. It doesn't matter what you eat. It's when and how you eat that will determine your ability to lose weight and keep that weight off. And that is a fundamental diet. I mean, you can, you can be vegan. You can be, you know, paleo, whatever you want. It doesn't matter truly what you eat as it relates to weight. And most people, you know, they think, well, that's not true. I got to eat breakfast. No, you don't. The data doesn't support that. You need to, you need to learn to eat when you're hungry and not when you're not. You need to learn the difference between appetite and hunger and not let the, the time on the clock dictate when you put fuel in your Ferrari or your Bugatti or your Lamborghini or whatever you, however you want to look at it. I personally believe that the human body is beautifully designed. And if you'll learn to listen to it and, and fuel it appropriately, then you're going to be way, way ahead of the curve. So from a weight perspective, it doesn't matter what you eat. From a health perspective, it does. You can't live on a diet of double bacon cheeseburgers and biggie size the fries and, as I like to say, oh, give me a Diet Coke as if that's going to make a difference. <laughs> you know, you can't that's, – that's not right. And – and I would never do this. I would never write a diet book. But if I do – and I, Gail always wants me to write you know, a book or two. Um, if I were to write a nutrition book, a, a diet book, I've got the name of it and it's going to be very simple. It's going to be Cut the Crap. And pardon my French, but mm -hmm. that's the best place to start. Quit putting crap in your gas tank. And it's not complicated. S nutrition is super simple. We need six things. We need three macronutrients. Those are fat, protein, and carbs. And you need, you need three micronutrients, which is vitamins, minerals, and water. Your fuel, your calories, your energy comes from the macronutrients. But they're all important. We should never demonize any category of nutrition, in particular carbs. Carbs aren't bad. Bad carbs are bad. Good carbs are fantastic. And if you have a brain or skeletal muscle, then you need carbohydrate. If you don't, then that's a different topic. But, you know, it's not complicated. The brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. It burns a lot of fuel. And the primary source of fuel for the brain is glycogen, which comes from glucose, which comes from carbohydrate. So carbs aren't bad, but there's a difference between a lentil and a lollipop. Bad carbs are ridiculous. <laughs> so processed sugar, all or, sorts or of – Or sweet potato and a the, bag of French fries. You know, it's just there's a big yeah. difference. And so you've got to appreciate this phenomenal gift you have. And, and you know, a, I, I like to use the analogy of a Bugatti, the most expensive production car in the world. It costs – the starting price is over $2 million. If you had a Bugatti, you would not put crap in your gas tank. You would appreciate it. I love that you're using that analogy. I, I was telling you that I'm training to do rim-to-rim -rim in the Grand Canyon. Which, by the way, I am so excited about. You are you are so going to stick that, Gail, and you're going to be so pumped when you reach the top. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But I recently went hiking with all these gals that are 10, 15 years younger than me. And at the end of our trip, I was like, okay, I can't change the chronological age. But I kind of adopted that car metaphor. And I thought, what? how can I increase my odds over the next month? And so I really – I thought about fuel and I thought about, you know, if I was trying to get my car ready to go on a trip. And so I've really been focusing on the water and just, you know, I know it's trendy to say eating clean, but 
being very aware of what I put sure. in my body. You and, gotta have fuel to do this hiking, right. that's for sure. But it's it's been it's been a different mindset because you know I've been interested in dieting for a long time. But just to look at food and say, is this a good thing? It, it's really making it very simple. And I think it, it's I think it's important what you're what you're sharing. It's a paradigm shift. It's not I can't eat that. Right. I choose not to eat that yeah. because I I am I'm interested. In, in improving my odds of performing. <laughs> right. I want to, yeah. Whether right. it's in the short term as an event, yeah. as you have right. coming up and training for a triathlon, triathlon or marathon or whatever, or a rim to rim, which is mm-hmm. going to be a blast. God, I'm so jealous. But but it's really, if you want to increase your odds of living a long and healthy life and, you know, being able to embrace the things that you like to do, that that kind of goes back to, I believe, your why. Mm-hmm. why. Why is this important? I don't believe that most people invest in themselves because of their triglycerides or their blood pressure. That's not what motivates people. Intrinsically, people want to look and feel better. They want to have energy. They want to sleep better. They want to do things that they enjoy doing and not be limited. So that, what, what your point is, you've got it. You've got a goal. You've been training for it. You're, you're, you've seen tremendous improvement in your fitness. And, and it's just like treating your Bugatti right now. You can, you know, the, you're, you're treating your, your vessel properly and it will reward you with a, with a great event. So we've talked about like kind of the benefits of having a company kind of adopt the whole, um, healthy eating because or eating lifestyle fitness just because diabetes is going to be an issue cardiovascular is heart disease still the number one killer of everybody it is but it, it probably go. is not going to be for long but it is and it actually kills more women than men so it's a it's a you know it's a very uh red red for women right if i yeah, remember correctly yeah um but <clears throat> my for what I always thought was interesting from like a, a performance standpoint is that every high performer that I've ever interacted with on a sales team or something else like that, they were some just bonkers. I was trying to find an appropriate word. Bonk. <laughs> appropriate. I was, was going to have. I don't a think stri- the FCC is monitoring uh, this. Go uh, ahead, I, let her rip. No, but, but Apple, but Apple Podcast. My grandma does. Uh, so Barbara's crazy. Um, so, but. Aside from the string of expletives that you can think about, they're they're just so intense into like physical fitness and like a very high performer. And you know, I had a I had a buddy of mine that I worked with when I was at Square, who's like the lead project manager, and he would literally leave for lunch, go run a half marathon, and then come back and just keep going the rest of the day. I mean, he did that. In- he must have a long lunch hour. It did it in an hour. No, this guy is insanely fast. He's a half marathon like, in an like hour? Like just over an hour, hour 15, like right around there. Chris Monka, you can look him up. Good. That's, that's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah 115 is a lot better than an hour. I mean, I yeah, there, there's a difference there, <laughs> but but I get it. I know. He, I, like, he, like, he yeah. did it like in the hour. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he was prioritizing fitness. Right. And yeah. then like I have another guy uh, that's a, a role model of mine who is now a triathlete, does Ironman and all that stuff. And they're just every, they're get in the gym if they're power lifters or something like that, or if they're really into yoga and or spin class or whatever, figuring out what right. it is. But they do that, whether it's first thing in the morning or last thing at night. And then they just, the, these are the highest performers. And I'm just wondering if there's a correlation there that you've seen um, that's impacted the performance, uh, like, you know, as, as the tide rises, so to speak. Those are men and women that like to keep score. And, and obviously fitness, there's, there's plenty of studies to validate that Fortune 500 leaders generally have, have prioritized fitness. 
um, because it, it just impacts in a positive way every aspect of your life. It makes you more efficient. You sleep better. You think better. You can problem solve better. Um, you know, every aspect. And, and I think the biggest, the, the word that is most overlooked in corporate America is mood. You know, the mood of employees, how do they feel about themselves and are they coming to work? Are they engaged? Are they, you know, how much time are they spending on on social media or whatever because they're just completely out of the, you know, they, they're just not motivated. Um, you don't have to be that guy that runs a half marathon at lunch to get massive benefit from from fitness. A lot of people, I like to exercise. It's not, to me, it's not a four-letter word. I, I really enjoy working out. Um, and I like a variety of things, which is something I would certainly recommend to anybody listening is don't be that one trick pony. Don't be that person that goes to the same treadmill at the same elevation at the same time at the same speed every single day. Mix it up. Little Pilates, little kettlebells, little, you know, take a class, do a Zumba class, take a spin class, do, you know, whatever you like, mix it, mix it around. Because the body appreciates variety, but you don't have to be maniacal about it. Now, if you really want to look at it and just look at the data, if you are – it depends on what your tolerance for intensity is. The the um, recommendations, the federal recommendations for physical activity is 150 minutes of moderate physical activity per week. So that's basically – Fairly brisk walking, moderate physical activity. If I'm, I'm you pulling up my iPhone because it tells me how much activity I do in a week. Uh, there you go. Okay, <laughs> so overachiever, I can yeah. tell. Gail, not surprising. He's your son. So, um, so if and that so that's walking. If you are willing to work harder, now the recommendation is you cut that in half. It's seventy-five minutes of vigorous physical activity per week. So that would be running, swimming, cycling. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you're really, you know, willing to push yourself, and I mean push yourself, uh, at a pretty extreme level, you can do the, you know, the HIT training. That seven minute workout is, and you know, there's tons of apps. You, it's free. It's not hard, but you got to do it. You can't, you know, just because you buy a treadmill doesn't mean you're going to be fit. Or more importantly, just because you buy a, an activity tracker like a, a Fitbit or a you know an Apple Watch or a Jawbone or you pick the I mean there's a uh-huh. hundred different varieties now and now now we're gonna we're gonna hear how yeah no, I was just curious Go I, was, ahead. I was waiting here uh, so here's what I've done in the last week so my average workout caloric burn in a day is 4,300 calories uh, 43,000 steps in the last week 20 miles in a week so seven so what are you averaging 40 40- Five miles a day, roughly, right around there. Depending on Sundays, I don't walk as much. So there's about two thousand steps in a mile. So if if, maybe this is just since Monday. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Monday since Monday. Sorry. And then I have five hours, five and a half hours of active time. Right. So you're an outlier. You're you're overachiever. I just wanted to point that out there. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. What do you think about wearables? Are they making us more? are they improving our fitness? That's a fantastic question. That's so funny you asked me that because I had a colleague today come into my office and I happened to have a 12-page paper that was just published on what's called a meta-analysis uh-huh. of all of the research, right? What's mm-hmm. the data? Right. It's because we hear that all the time. The you know people Generally, wellness in any company usually lives in HR. And mm-hmm. HR people tell me all the time, well, we're just going to buy Fitbits for all our people and boom, we're going to have a bunch of triathletes running around. I did it. it. You, you did. How many are wearing? Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that was in January. Yeah. So here's the here's what's interesting. So the technology has exploded. So now you you've got this. You can put it in in bracelets and and all you know. Obviously, you know wristbands and watches and things on your feet. The technology is now there to track a lot of things. 
But if you go back 10 or 15 years, we had the, the precursor to the wearable was the pedometer, yeah, which just measured steps. And, and yeah. by the way, the, the wearables are not hyper accurate, so don't get hung up on that. They're, you, know, you put three or four different um, brands on your wrists, and you're, at the end of the day, you're going to get a lot of different numbers. But for the most part, they're, they're a pretty good indicator. But here's what's interesting. First and foremost is a takeaway. 10,000 steps is not the magic number. Everybody thinks it's the magic number. It came from an unpublished paper in Japan that was put out by a uh, pedometer company in the 1960s. So everybody thinks that there's this magic number of 10,000 steps. Don't get me wrong. 10,000 steps is fine. It's a good, it's a nice number. The benefit starts at 7,500 steps, and the real detriment happens if you get less than 5,000 in a day. So if you want to benchmark, if you really are thinking, where what do I need to do to get benefit, is 7,500 steps. 10,000 more is better. I don't argue that at all, but, but here's the problem, I believe, is that if you take someone that is physically inactive, and there's... The majority of Americans are deconditioned and they're not meeting any for, sort of federal guidelines. And you say you've got a average, if you look at the data, average American gets about five to 5,000 to 5,500 steps. And now you say you've got to get 10,000 steps to get benefit. And that's my goal. And I'm pumped and I bought the Fitbit and I bought the Fitbit for all my employees. But now if I wear that Fitbit or that, that wearable, for a week, and I'm failing to get to 10,000, I'm only getting to maybe 6,000 or 7,000 or 8,000, what happens? What happens mentally as a human being when you are failing at something, you don't feel good about yourself? Dang it, I, I, I didn't make it. Now, maybe tonight when I get home, I'll go take the dog for a walk and I'll add the 3,400 steps that I need to get. But what we're finding now and what the literature is showing is that the compliance, the usage of of this is going down, and they're finding that a lot of times it's disincentivizing. Because if I go three or four days and I am I don't feel good about myself, what do I do? I take off my wearable and I stick it in a drawer, just like everybody did 15 years ago with pedometers. So for a, for a small group, i.e. your son, I mean, I would put that, you know, there's there's very interesting populations, right? The most maniacal people about about tracking numbers and dates and calories and all of that are triathletes, followed very closely by CrossFitters, <laughs> the people that want to validate what they're all about. And you're smiling right now for anybody listening. <laughs> Kyle is a CrossFitter. Well, I mean, but at, at the same point in time, I, well, not just uh, to kind of go backtrack, I mean, but one of the things I like, even whether it was when I had my Fitbit or now the Apple Watch, is that my friends that are on it that share what they're doing in a day, I like that competitive component. Yes. And that is like a um, – it's a real motivating factor for me because I'm sure as heck not going to let my brother outdo me in a day. And that is a very important, very important factor, more more important for men – Based on research than women, men like to keep score more than women do. Women I'm like all to about be keeping score. They like to be in groups. They like to compete in groups. They don't like to compete individually. And I'm generalizing here, right. so don't you know? I don't you know. It, just you look at the research around that. But here's what you, you make a very valid point. Your friends are all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So study published in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Published data indicates that if your spouse is obese, you are 37% more likely to be obese. 
What about if your friends are obese? Do you think that number is higher or lower? Higher. How much higher? 37% for I mean, your well, spouse. like a majority of your friends or like all of your friends? If you're, if you're in generally your, yeah, your friends. I, I would say that if it's 37% for a spouse, uh, then it would probably, probably be upper, upwards of fit, over 50%. 171% higher likelihood. Mm-hmm. So that's why so six, it's 70-ish? Massive, massive impact, which basically says birds of a feather flock together. Mm-hmm. You do CrossFit. I mm-hmm. bet your friends do CrossFit. I do jiu-jitsu too, and yeah. I run. Yeah, okay. And I bike from time Kyle, to time. Kyle, this is not about you. This is about, this is not about me. It's more, about I'm we. Saying, I'm okay. just saying I do all more right, than all that. All right, all I'm right. I'm not a what, one-trick pony. No, no, no. I, what I'm saying is, in general, it's, you know, you used to hear opposites attract, and I think that's only for, like, high school girls that are attracted to the bad boy for a short yeah. period of time. In general... It is birds of a feather flock together. So if you smoke, generally your friends smoke. If you ride bikes, your friends ride bikes. If you do CrossFit, you're, you know that's just the way we roll. Which is also an interesting, you know, interesting fact is that if you're if you're looking to change something and you're looking to embrace uh, a particular behavior that your friends aren't embracing, which ultimately boils down to the simple fact that that health is all habits. A habit is something you do without thinking about it. We tie our shoes, we brush our teeth, we put on our seatbelt without thinking about it. And and 40 to 50% of behavior, according to the research, is habitual. We do what we do just without even thinking about it. And that's the key to health. You have to habitualize behavior. I don't think about brushing my teeth. I also don't think about taking omega-3 and vitamin D every day. You know why? Because I have the bottle right next to my toothbrush and I make it easy. And I also floss at the same time because flossing is important. So these behaviors, all of these things about what we're talking about, for the most part, anybody listening, there's nothing novel about what we've talked about today. We know exercise is good. We know maintaining a healthy weight, not smoking, getting plenty of sleep, all of those things. There's nothing mysterious about health. We have all the answers. We have to figure out how to habitualize them so that we, if, if we're really, you know, want to invest in ourselves and want to be a little bit selfish, how do we figure out how to increase our odds of enjoying life and participating and doing the things like your mom's going to do in two weeks and climb from rim to rim of the Grand Canyon. How cool is that? Well, to use the rim to rim as an example, I mean, every journey starts with a single step. So, like, what can people do then to actually start kind of the process to make habits a thing? Walk the dog even if they don't have one. Buy yourself a dog, and if you want a hyper dog, go buy yourself a Belgian Malinois. As a Malinois father, I will let you know you um, need to do that. You know, if you want to start habits, and that's a, I have a whole talk around that, and I love the topic. You know, and, the, and, and Gail, you know this. The name of the talk is Aristotle was right, because Aristotle used to say that we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act but a habit. And if you want to be excellent, whatever you're picking, you know, whatever you're thinking about, if you want to be excellent at it, you've got to figure out how to how to make it a habit. And, and health is about finding something that you can do every day or at least regularly for the rest of your life. It's not about what you can do for 30 days or what you can do for this period, you know, P90X or whatever. Um, it's, it's about on a daily basis making decisions that are going to 
increase your odds of getting you to where you want to go and pushing back disability and and having energy and, and finding joy in life and influencing others in a positive way, leaving the campground cleaner than you found it, all the, you know, however you want to look at it. I believe to answer your question, Kyle, where you start is by asking yourself, what's your why? Why do you get up in the morning? You know, uh, Dan Buettner from author of the Blue Zones and all this research, which is really interesting. They're looking at uh, populations around the world that live long and well. The commonalities are pretty, they're pretty similar, right? It, whether it's Okinawa, Japan or Costa Rica or Loma Linda, California or Sardinia, they, they all pretty much do the same thing. They eat generally a plant-based diet, not exclusively, but generally that's what they eat. They don't exercise. Because they don't have to. It's part of their day. In, in Okinawa, they don't eat on tables. They eat on the floor. You've got to be strong enough to get up and down off the floor on your own every day if you want to eat. So that's a, that's a habit. And you're doing it day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. It impacts your quality of life. And the other thing that they found, and it's worth up to seven years of extra life expectancy, is knowing your sense of purpose. Knowing your why. Why would any of this matter? Why would you want to embrace these particular habits that we talk about that we're all aware of? It really helps if you know your why. You know, what is, what's your juice? What is it that you, what's your purpose in life? And I think, I, I firmly believe that we're all on this earth not to just, you know, trade time for money, take up space, you know, satisfy ourselves. I think we're here to have a positive impact on other people. I'm convinced of that. And you're not going to do it if you hurt and if you don't have energy and if you're depressed and you don't feel good about yourself. You can have a positive impact on a ton of people in your family, in your church, in your, your schools, your community, your businesses. You can have a huge impact on other people. Uh, but you've got to start by taking care of yourself and then leading and influencing and, and, and helping people get to where they want to go. And that's, I believe, you know, when we talk specifically about leadership within organizations, there's a responsibility there. I think that's important because oftentimes the work family is, is the only family that someone has. And if you can create those, you don't force people into anything. You create opportunities for them to be able to accomplish what it is where they want to go. And there's, there's sticks and carrots that you can employ and there's all sorts of legal issues and things that you can, I mean, the Affordable Care Act, believe it or not, really made it, uh, the, the, the wellness industry. It really gave, uh, a lot of tools and, and strategies that employers can use to help influence health. But I'll tell you, we, you know, the, we work with companies with, with all companies from 300 to 3 million. It's, it's all over the map. And it is amazing to me. That when, when you can provide a vehicle and a solution for an individual that has been struggling sometimes for years or decades around their weight or around their fitness or around their overall health and sense of well-being, man, they're really happy when you can help them. And that reflects really well on the culture and the, the, the morale of the organization. And it's, it's something that we've got to do because if we don't, as my dad used to say, we're all going to end up in very deep yogurt. Um, it's going to be a mess. Deep yogurt. Yeah. Well, I'm just kind of like waiting for like the U.S. large companies to kind of like adopt what they do in Japan where they have like that calisthenics routine where they're like going to shift. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad idea. The data around that seems to be, especially for manufacturing companies, there's some, there's, there's some Before data. Before you that, go into like the Toyota plant and you just like, every, it seems like everybody, when they, they show these documentaries, I'm like, gosh, man, everybody seems pretty on point by the time they leave there. 
and you're, you're and, awake. and they don't have musculoskeletal issues, despite the mm-hmm. fact that they're doing repetitive motion activities on a regular you know regular basis. Um, but again, it's you know it's it's a complicated issue. You know, being being healthy in our in our environment, we have an obesogenic environment. We're not where we are by mistake. It's it's the environment we live in. Todd, when you first came in today, you mentioned that you're working on a new book. When can we expect that? Oh man, I'm glad you gave me a deadline, Gail. Because if I <laughs> if I say it on on tape or on digitally, skip the deadline. What's it about? <laughs> it will be before the end of the year. I guarantee okay. you that. Okay. It's called Fit Happens. Oh, I love it. I Simple love it. steps to healthy living. Perfect. Um, and it's it's intended to be uh, informational. It's intended to be motivational. And it's intended to be extremely readable, which I know for a you know that sounds kind of dumb for a guy to talk. I want a I want a book that's readable. It's not a it's it's not intended to be anything other than thought provoking and hopefully to get people to be able to kind of wrap their head around the things that we've talked about today. All in a size eighteen font. <laughs> that's up to my publisher as to what that looks like. I I put the words down and I've been working on this book for literally I you a said decade. It's going to be easy to read. Yeah. Well, and there'll be some pictures, Kyle. So you'll be, it'll yes! be good. You'll like that. I got a little return to color books. It's great. Well, I think that's a, uh, a good place for us to wrap. Um, with that being said, if you would like to book Todd Whitthorn to come and speak for your event, your company, um, maybe just for you, uh, you can do so uh, by contacting GDA speakers at 214-420-1999 or by going to gdaspeakers.com uh, for the transcript, uh, books, everything else, uh, photos, whatnot, uh, you can go to gdapodcast.com where you can find it all there. With that being said, thanks, Todd. (laughs) Thanks, Todd. It was great. Gail, Kyle, thank you guys very much. Always good to, to hang out with you, Gail. I appreciate everything you've done over the years very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.